You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. We have Jacob, who's going to be sharing the word, preaching to us this afternoon, and I'm going to be doing the scripture reading. So if you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 26, that would be wonderful as I read for us. So if you're visiting, uh, or maybe you're not familiar with the book of Acts, the book of Acts, uh, where we are at in chapter 26, is right at the end of the book. And Paul, who used to be persecuting the church of God, uh, has met Jesus. And he is now advancing the sake of the gospel. He's preaching the gospel, but he's been imprisoned for doing so. And we pick up now where he is uh, speaking to leaders um, Agrippa and Fessa. So let's read Acts chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me. And to, those things, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. 
that the Christ must suffer and that by, G- by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. This has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day may become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. RHC, these are the true words of the living God. Thanks be to God. Help us to respond in faith. Thanks, Jacob. That was great. What a plot twist, right? Right at the end. Uh, he was making a case not to defend himself, but to persuade the king to become a Christian. Um, all right, uh, let me pray for us and then we can begin properly. Lord, we thank you for this special day that we appointed elders. Uh, that we are preaching from your word uh, because this is so important to us, your word. This is all about you. And we see in verse 23 that Jesus himself is proclaiming the light. And so we pray that today we'll receive the light, we'll receive from your word and we'll respond to you by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We've been going through the book of Acts for a number of uh, weeks and for the past few weeks during CG, uh, it feels like a little bit of like more of the same, right? You have uh, Paul, Paul suffering, Paul suffering faithfully, and then we ask ourselves the question of um, like, what do we do with this, right? Um, how are we to also suffer faithfully, just like Paul? Is this Paul guy some super Christian who set an example for us in which it's just impossible to attain? Um, did he set the bar too high? What does that mean for ordinary Christians? like you and I. Uh, when I led CG discussion a few weeks ago, I opened with the questions, what is your mission statement in life? And the reason why I asked that question is that uh, we need to frame these things that Paul is going through, his suffering, his affliction, because this is more than just a person uh, who suffered well. He is focused. He is extremely focused about what he is suffering for, or rather who he is suffering for. And I think that's the key to answering the question, where did Paul get all this divine, supernatural strength from? Because truth be told, he is made of the same substance as you and I, weak, fallible, and you find uh, in the scriptures many instances where he expressed uh, weaknesses as well. This is an ordinary man. Um, what I noticed as I asked my CG to craft a mission statement. What is your mission in life? That many of us really struggled to craft that mission statement. It took us so long. So typically, if you ask the how are you, people get 
warm up very quickly, right? They can just talk about their days, their week. Um, but when it's phrased, what is your mission statement in life? I, I noticed uh, almost everyone was struggling to articulate what, what is that one mission statement in our life. And um, I'm not too surprised in some ways because we live in a city where there's just temptation all around us telling us that if we were to buy that product, if we were to get that thing, if we were to finally achieve this or that, then our life will be happier, will be more fulfilled. So the truth is this, right? Most of us actually don't spend too much time thinking about what am I here on earth for? What do I live for? What is my mission in life? We simply cruise along. And that um, is something that I pray, I hope that this text will challenge us to realign ourselves in what God is doing. If you are non-Christian, if you are here exploring the Christian faith, um, sitting in here because uh, you want to know more about who Jesus is and what is the good news of Christianity, I pray today that you see and experience that Jesus himself is appealing to you. He is the one who is uh, preaching to you the word, the light. I'm just an instrument and I pray that by the end of this service uh, that uh, you would experience uh, something of God uh, that will cause you to respond to him. Don't, don't take it from me respond to him directly. And for the rest of us as uh, believers, uh, my encouragement is really just three words. Go, tell, persuade. That's my servant title and that's my three points. Go, tell, persuade. It should be quite easy for you to remember. So I'll just dive straight in. Go. I think the book of Acts is straightforward so far. We are sent, therefore go. Okay? We are sent, therefore go. Uh, when you look at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus ascended into heaven. He left behind his Holy Spirit to his disciples and all his followers. They were filled by the Holy Spirit. The church was birthed. And it wasn't just birthed so that they could enjoy fellowship and sing worship song and enjoy themselves day in, day out. They were given a mission. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to the end of the earth. That was what Christ told his disciples. They shall be called witnesses. Now you will look at this text. When you look at this text, the dispute the, the clue of the dispute is actually in verse 19. Uh, there was a certain Jesus, according to Festus, who was dead. He was crucified on the cross. He was dead. Uh, they put him into a grave, locked there. The grave was closed. And Paul and many others asserted that he was alive. He is alive. And I want, just want to remind us that today that is still the Christian message. Nothing has changed. You and I are called to go into the world to testify that Jesus is alive. Through your life, through your testimonies, through your words, through your silence of, uh, in, in certain situations that you, you, you face, through your faithfulness, you will testify that Jesus is alive. Now, Paul, Paul received this call. In fact, he received uh, quite a supernatural, amazing encounter with the Lord Jesus himself, uh, and his life was changed. He obeyed the call. He knew he was sent. He was a man on a mission and he, he went and he kept going. He kept going even though there were opposition, there were hardship, there were trials, there were setbacks and it hurts and he kept going. I just want to pause a moment because this could be for some of us seated here. Many years ago, maybe you have received some kind of call in your life. Some kind of, I'm going to live my life for Jesus. I'm going to spend this whole life of however long it could be we don't know, 70 years, 80 years, maybe shorter, who knows, right? I'm going to spend the rest of my life telling the world about my precious Savior, Jesus. 
and life became hard <laughs> and, and difficult uh, and there are setbacks. Uh, and maybe you feel discouraged. Maybe you wonder with all these setbacks and pains and difficulties and trial, am I still caught? And you need to hear from the Bible today that God's instruction to you has not changed. Go and keep going. Obey and keep obeying. There will be setback. There will be setback. It is guaranteed. But keep going. Let's keep going. Now we see in Paul's life, right now, chapter 26, uh, this is his public defense. Uh, he was charged with quite a few serious crimes. He inciting a riot, undermining public peace, um, charged with uh, heresy. Uh, and this is, these are all very serious um, things to, to be charged. And he appealed to Caesar. At the end of uh, chapter 24, uh, under the previous governor, Felix, uh, he waited for two years, two years, before this case was passed to the new governor, Festus, uh, in chapter 26. So, the, so Paul actually suffered setbacks, waited for years before he could arrive at this stage in front of uh, King Agrippa. Now, the stage is this. Uh, Agrippa arrived... Um, and he, he was there and along with um, some of the most prominent men of his time. Um, this Agrippa, he was a, what we call a client king, some kind of like a puppet king. Um, he was a king of Judea, but under the Roman Empire, under the Roman emperor. And Festus uh, was, the, was the governor. Festus was a Gentile person. He didn't understand Jewish tradition, Jewish law, uh, the, the Torah. He had no idea. He had no interest about those things. Uh, he just knew that there were some religious disputes over this Jesus guy. You know, and, and there was some, some folks say he's dead. Some folks say that he's alive. It got very serious. People want Paul to be killed. And now um, Festus is out of his depths. As the new guy who just took over, he's like, okay, so now Paul wants to make an appeal to Rome, to Caesar himself. I'm supposed to generate this report so that I can pass him forward to the next part of the process uh, of his appeal. But he doesn't know what to do. So Agrippa came, came along. Agrippa was from a family line uh, that lived in Judea for generations. Uh, he was a king uh, in which uh, his, his father was a king too and the great-grandfather was a king. Um, he's well familiar with uh, Jewish custom and tradition. So he came and uh, as we are told in Acts 25, he arrived with great pomp with Bernice, his lady, into an audience hall of military prowess, political powers. Uh, think about the NDP. Every year, NDP uh, is, a, is a stage where we showcase power, right? Power and might, um, tanks and airplanes and uh, the most uh, prominent politicians, MPs, they're all gathered there. So the, the stage that Paul was in was something like that. Uh, and the goal was for Agrippa to come in and listen to Paul uh, and for them to be able to generate these statements to pass him along as he appealed to Rome. So all the elites of the days were there. This would be Paul's final and most public defense of his faith, the largest stage, the stage that God wanted him to be. Now, how did he end up here? That's the question. What, did he plan it all along? When, he, when God said go, did he like, wow, okay, I'm going to plan my, my life such that I'll end up on this day at this particular stage. Now let's look at some of these verses. Um, it says, Agrippa said to Paul, you, you have permission now to speak for yourself. Meaning in, in, the, in the first verse, the power dynamic is huge. A king giving Paul the permission. Before Paul could speak, he needed permission from the king. And then Paul made his case. 
And he began by saying, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm making my defense because you understand the Jewish law and so on. So I beg of you to listen to me patiently. Now, some context here is uh, perhaps uh, necessary for us to understand the tension in the story up to this point. Uh, this was a man whose great-grandfather, King Herod, uh, tried to murder Jesus when Jesus was a baby, was a, was a child. And when he failed to do that, as he, as he was trying to do that, he murdered many other innocent children. Uh, Agrippa's grandfather beheaded John the Baptist. His father murdered the apostles, James. So this is unlikely to be a, a friendly conversation. <laughs> if you look at the history and the context, this is the stuff of drama. Okay? And how Paul began by sharing his he started to talk about his youth. My manner of life for my youth spent from the beginning. It's known by all the Jews. Now, how did Paul end up here? There's no short answer to that question. It was a journey that began from his youth. Even before he knew God, God was already in charge of his life. Sovereignly leading, directing, using every situation, giving him even his intense personality so that through conversion, it will be channeled, turned around, for the agenda of God's kingdom. Uh, Paul certainly did not plan his life into that level of detail that ended up here. Yeah, he had to relinquish control. I'm sure Paul, he planned his life. I'm not against planning, uh, but this is not one of those situations that you can accomplish through your smart goal setting every year, right? You know, and somehow ended up here as you plan for ministry and evangelism. Now, Paul did not end up here because he carefully planned his life. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't plan. We should plan like good Singaporeans. But the point is this, you can plan all you want to and God is ultimately sovereign. He's the one that direct your steps. Our point, our, our, our reference is to keep going and to keep trusting. And in every situation, remember what we are living for. We are living for Jesus. We are living as people on a mission. Uh, in case you think that this is just for Paul, this is just for the super Christians or those who are appointed elders, uh, then they are like, they sign up for this and Joseph is like, wow, they are sign up for this special treatment. Um, I think this is for all of us and I'm going to show to you in a moment. This is the word of Jesus. It will be up on the screen for you. It's from Luke chapter 21. Jesus addressing his disciples, saying that they will lay their hands on you. They will persecute you. They will deliver you up to the synagogue and prison. And guys, you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. By you being a Christian, testifying to the world that Jesus is alive, this will land you into hot soup, literally for some of them. Uh, and this will be your opportunity to bear witness. So let this sink in. This is not just for the super Christians, the elite Christian, the apostles and the poor and so on. This is for all disciples. In all situations, to witness, to testify for our faith. Redemption Hill Church, I know we talk about gospel-centered theology, theological depths. Does that gospel-centered theological depths in our life, in our church culture, does it produce a missional life that see persecution and trust, trials as opportunities to bear witness for God? Is that the case for you and I? Now, it's easy for us to witness and share our faith uh, in a cozy setting like this, in a ballroom, attend church, and do our Christian thing in a context like Singapore. But often when things don't go our way, when we land ourselves in trouble for being Christians, do we see those hardships and setbacks as opportunity 
to bear witness for the Lord. I just really want to encourage us. Go and keep going. We are caught. We are sent. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. So that's point one. Let's keep going. We are called to go. We are called to tell. Tell. So Paul simply shared his story. He simply tell his stories. He tell his testimonies. Uh, life from his youth. Verse 5, live as a Pharisee. Verse 6, now he stand on trial because of the hope in the promise made by God to his fathers. Uh, and then verse uh, 7, um, for this hope I'm accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? His point is this, uh, doesn't our faith, doesn't it point out that God can raise the dead and is fulfilling all his promises, uh, promises that was given to the prophet? And now his point is that all these promises are fulfilled through that one man, Jesus Christ, the God who came and took on flesh and went to the cross for you and I. So that's the message of Paul's life. He kept repeating that again and again. And then he talked about himself. When he talked about himself, this, this is the way he talked about himself. I'm convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So she's talking about his past. And I did. I locked up many of the saints. I put them to death. I punished them in all the synagogues. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even in foreign cities. Verse 11. And then something changed. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So Paul is highlighting that I am awful. I'm the chief of sinner. I've done many, many bad things in my life. And I encountered Jesus. And Jesus, the first thing that he said to me was to convict me of sin. So this is not a warm and fuzzy encounter with God in which he, uh, I feel so loved by the love of Jesus. This was like the first meeting was like, why are you persecuting me, murdering Christians and doing all these awful things against me? And Paul actually knew that that was the Lord. That was the Lord whom he worshipped. So he knew from the first statement that he encountered from Jesus that he was a sinner. But here lies another small little detail uh, that was missing in Acts chapter 9 when uh, we were told about Saul's conversion to, to um, as, you know, as he became a, a Christian. Um, there's a line that says, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, what does that mean? Uh, I don't presume that we use that word in our normal language these days, the goats. Uh, this is back in those days, in the days when farmer uses animal to plow the fields, uh, it is a stick that is sharp that you use to poke at the animal, <laughs> to inflict pain, to get them to move in the right direction. So if you want your ox to move in a straight line and the, the ox stray to a different direction, you use the goats to, to, um, you, to inflict pain on them until they cooperate. So what is Paul saying? I am like an animal, <laughs> foolish, and needed my master to direct my path. And this is how I ended up here. Can you see the humility here? It's, it's not about... Look at me, look at how awesome I am, look at my credibility, look at how spiritual and learned I am. Therefore, based on my testimony, based on how I'm able to debate you and win you in this argument, based on that, you need to believe in Jesus. No, he's, he's just humbly telling his story, making much of Jesus, and highlighting the grace that he has received from Jesus. Paul is saying, I'm the chief of sinners. And the good news is, Jesus saved sinners. 
Jesus saves sinners. I'm quoting a friend. Church, we don't have to look good to make God look good. We look weak and broken and needy to make our Savior look all-sufficient and glorious. That is how we tell our story. That is how we proclaim to the world who Jesus is. And when we do that, this is what Jesus would do. In verse 18, open their eyes. Turn them from darkness to light. Bring them from the power of Satan to the power of God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Me referring to Jesus himself. So this is the word of Jesus. In verse 18, Paul is quoting Jesus himself. So this is not just Paul trying to give a testimony um, and tr- aiming for being relatable, right? I'm going to tell you this really inspiring story about myself, how I become Christian. No, he, he packs in rich, rock-solid theology about Jesus into his testimony. Now, now this verse, darkness to light, Satan to God, forgiveness, sanctification. Just, just from this verse, I think we can preach a sermon, maybe two sermons. It's, it's, it's packed within this one verse, just the richness of theology. Um, what does this mean for us? Do you know that we live in a world where some of the most epic stories involve all these themes, darkness and light, good and evil, the need for redemption and forgiveness, a place where I can be accepted, grace, and the power for me to change, sanctification. Now in this one verse, it touches the core of human longings. We all long for that. And before we even go to a point where we try to prove whether this is true or not, let's just acknowledge for a moment, we wish for all these things to be true, right? We wish for all these things to be true, for a world in which the light will triumph over darkness and good will triumph over evil. Isn't this the most fundamental, universal human desires and longing? And it's not just observing the world and looking at all these things as some kind of like things that are happening out there somewhere, but internally as well. Can, can you feel the tension and the battle with it within darkness and light, good and evil? They're all inside. Who can save us? Who can give me the strength to overcome the evil that resides deep in me? The deep, dark evil that's in me, that's in you. Now, this tells us that we all need salvation. We all need Jesus. But I'm going to camp on the second part, sanctified by faith, because the part about forgiveness and grace, um, as a church, we talk about that quite a fair bit. Uh, you're saved by grace. Jesus went to the cross for you and so on. So I'm not going to focus on the forgiveness part. I'm going to focus on the sanctified by faith part. Um, what does that mean? How can the love of God, how can the grace of God sanctify? Sanctified meaning uh, progressively being made into the image of God according to His perfect standard of holiness. You and I, as believers, we are not just forgive, forgiven and our sins are wiped out clean, but we are sanctified by the grace of God to become increasingly more and more holy like Jesus. That holiness that, that we receive from Him externally will become part of us increasingly. So how are we being sanctified by faith? Does that mean that okay, after you are forgiven, yeah, there's no condition 
But then now that you're a Christian, here are all the rules. I don't know whether that's your experience of the Christian life. I remember uh, as a younger Christian, I was very confused by that. You tell me that I'm saved by grace. And then now in the church, environment, I have all these rules that people keep telling me I must do this and do that and not do this and not do that. And it's like, wow, being a Christian is so hard and so difficult. Um, but this text tells us that the same faith, the same grace that justify and forgive also has the power to change us. The same love that transform Paul's life is changing him increasingly to the likeness of God. Uh, let me try to get this to us in a way that hopefully is uh, relatable and uh, you can understand that um, we, Yvonne and I, we do um, quite a number of premarital counseling or PMC. Uh, a few weeks ago, um, we started PMC with a new couple and normally when we meet them for the first time, we ask questions like you know, just getting to know them, your family, how you know each other, uh, and um, just how you come to faith and those things. It's a dinner, supposed to be casual, not too intense, um, but I normally at the end of it try to put in something a bit more intense. And the question that I often ask is, uh, now that you are thinking about marriage and getting married, um, consider what are some of the things and challenges that could cause you in the days ahead to, co- to even consider divorce? So what would be your deal breaker? What are some items in your marriage ahead that could make you want to consider the possibility of divorce? And often when we get to that, wow, it's like solemn, it's like serious. People are thinking, wow, what are some of the worst possible scenario that will make me want to file for divorce with this person next to me? And usually, you know, they're in love and they don't think that much. But the whole point is to get them to think what would be your deal Breaker. It's a very, very uh, often very, very fruitful discussion that we can understand each other better, you know, know, know them, know the couple a bit more. And um, I know that my wife's deal breaker is uh, infidelity. Uh, she grew up in a household where um, dad had an affair and that affected her, her mom, her sister very, very deeply. So this would be a deal breaker for her. And so I normally say, oh, yeah, you know, Yvonne would say that if uh, I ever cheat on her, um, this could be the end of our marriage. But I, I remember in, in, that, in that session, that was the same week that there were a couple of um, prominent um, politicians uh, in which the news uh, came out about uh, how they have to resign uh, due to moral failure. So it was an interesting week to discuss those things. Um, and in that moment, I suddenly said something like this uh, to the couple. I, I said this. Uh, I actually think that even if I were to commit the stupidest sin uh, that could jeopardize my marriage, I actually have confidence from the past 12 years of marriage that my wife would still love me. (laughs) And I still have a fair shot in saving my marriage. Now, before you get it in the wrong idea, (laughs) you can actually laugh and release some of the nervous energy. Um, I'm not implying anything bad or what. Um, I'm trying to get to how the gospel transforms us. Because I'm not motivated by fear. I'm motivated by a love that is too precious for me to mess up. you understand the dynamic there? Because I know that I am accepted, because I know that this love is deep, this love is precious, it changes the way you are being motivated. It's no longer about if I do wrong, someone will reject me and divorce me. It is about, wow, I have something so precious. How can I mess this up? How can I mess this up? Friends, I'm talking about the love of Jesus. I'm not making this about me or my marriage. I want us to look at the love of Jesus. He went to the cross to cleanse us of sins. He is faithful to the end. 
And no matter how many times you mess up, He remains faithful to you. Does that move you? If that moves you, that must change you. That must change your attitude towards your sins. That must give you new courage and new strength to fight sins. Because you must remember that God is now your master. You are transformed by His radical love so that we follow Him and live according to His way. So back to Paul. Is he a super Christian? He's not. I can show you from another couple of verses to just to press in this point a little bit more. Verse 22, 23. This is the secret to Paul's life. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying to all of you, saying nothing but what the prophet and Moses said would come to pass. That Christ will suffer and by being the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, uh, just a few observations. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that in case you think I'm a super Christian, no, 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 it's not true. Help has been given to me all this while, and this help comes directly from God. In case you think that I'm a gifted preacher, I can preach in a way that is compelling, I'm telling you no too. I have been saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses had already said. I mainly, mainly just repackage what they say and point to Jesus uh, and tell you that this, this Christ is the one that suffered and he overcome death for us. In case you think that I'm the one proclaiming light, look at the language. He would proclaim light. Not me. I don't have the light. I only have darkness deep inside. But Christ Jesus is the one that proclaimed light to all of you. So I hope that settled that, settle it for, for all of us. This is no super Christian. This is an ordinary man like you and I. Same substance. He feels sadness, he gets discouraged, he gets depressed and anxious, and he's saying that I have help that comes from God. I have a message that comes from Moses and the prophet, and I'm not here to proclaim light to you. Jesus Christ is the one that is proclaiming light. Now, our story are part of a grander, more epic, redemptive story. We are weak and needy characters in this story, because this story is about him. The true hero is not us. The hero is Jesus, the all-sufficient Savior whom we give glory to. Today we appointed two new elders. One of them is seated there, Joseph. <laughs> Isn't this a wonderful news? Because you know what's going to happen when we appoint um, people into leadership, and it's very tempting for all the leaders, especially in the context of church and spiritual leadership. When you appoint someone here, myself, A. Kyung, Simon, um, whoever that's being appointed as elder, there's such a huge weight. Yeah, I'm supposed to be this super Christian, People get so shocked when they realize that I sin. Yeah, I sin all the time. <laughs> but when we are clear about the gospel, it is so liberating. Through your weaknesses, even when you mess up, God can glorify himself. I noticed that when he was standing here, um, I have the privilege of uh, doing his wedding as well. He had that expression, his eyes was closed. The same way that he made a vow to love this woman seated here, he took that with the same seriousness. I'm going to discharge my duty but not by my own strength, by the grace of God. Isn't that marvelous? So let's continue to build this culture of leadership and servanthood in our church family. Those who stand here are servants. We are not here because we are special, we have some special power anointing. No, no, no. There's, there's some kind of anointing. I, I know the word has, is very loaded. God has called us. That's what it means, right? He set us apart. But we are really made of the same substance. We are fallible. We are weak. And we're here to tell you that Jesus is the main hero, not us. So go, tell, finally persuade. That's my last point, persuade. Now the word persuade uh, came out from this text, verse 28. 
It will be on the screen, um, verse 25 onward. Uh, by the way, um, persuasion means that making sure that you're understood, right? When you make a case, it's not just telling people, but telling in such a way that you're understood. So it's not just the contents, but the manner in which you present those contents. Um, and so Paul was understood by Festus even, because Festus understood it and knew that this guy is out of his mind to talk about the resurrection. He was so clear about Christ's resurrection that a non-Christian there knew that this is crazy, this is out of the world. Um, and uh, Agrippa said to Paul this very fascinating line, um, in a short time, short, short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all those who are seated here, who are hearing me, that they would also become just like me, a Christian, except for this chain. Now, I want you to just imagine how dramatic that is, how compelling that is. It's not just a man who is standing there giving a very clear concise, intellectually stimulating uh, argument, uh, argument to prove that the resurrection took place. No, he, he was all in. He was there in chain so that he could be there to testify to Agrippa and to all those who were listening there that Jesus is the Messiah. So the plot twist is this. We thought that this is about a really, really long-drawn court case where someone was charged and through you know, multiple ways of escalation, uh, he was trying to defend his case, and we thought that he's trying to get away scot-free, prove himself innocent. But what does the last verse say? He would have been let off if he had not keep appealing. So why did he keep appealing? That should be the most natural question that we ought to ask. He kept appealing because he knew that God's purpose for him was to testify to the gospel in chain. Remember? There was a prophecy. They will put you in chain. And when you're in chain, you will continue to speak about Jesus, to proclaim about Jesus. And Paul was fixated, was focused on the missions given to him. Another interesting thing is, when Paul appealed to the Gentiles, he was engaging their worldviews of the pagan gods and so on. But when he's appealing to Agrippa, you know this is language, right? I appeal to you, Agrippa, as someone who is familiar with the Jewish law and traditions and customs. He is connecting with Agrippa according to the given context. He understands the person. He understands his audience, and he presented the message in a different way that could appeal and relate to them. Now, Christians are called to go and tell, but more than that, we're actually called to persuade. We're actually called to understand people, understand the world, so that we can present this unchanging gospel message to a changing world in a, world, in a, in a way that relates well with them, in, in a way that connects, in, in a way that engages. The story of Jesus is the main point of Paul. Paul is trying to retell this story again and again and again and again. Now, 2,000 years later, we're telling this story again and again, and again, and again. If you are a Christian attending this year, I hope you are not bored by now that um, your pastors don't have new things to tell you. Jesus died, rose again. <laughs> we have to respond to him in faith, in repentance. It's the same message again, and again. tell to you in different ways. Hopefully each time it hit you afresh. It challenges you in, in, in new ways. Um, 
you know that there's this wonderful reversal, which I'm, I don't know how obvious it is for you. Um, Paul, according to this text, he was this helpless prisoner in chain, talking to the greatest influencers of his time, standing before them. These are the celebrities, the most prominent people, and Paul was this nobody, this little guy in chain, no power against them. But today, because of the gospel, you and I probably have to Google who Agrippa is because we have no idea who he is until you do some research and read commentary about who this guy is. Uh, we need to find out more about Festus, who is this guy. You know, there's hardly anything that you can find out about him um, except for uh, some historical record. Um, and then th there's Bernice, um, but the Apostle Paul, he needs no introduction. And today we remember Agrippa and Festus as those who once graced in the presence of the marvelous apostles, Paul. So the gospel has this power to flip things around. <laughs> this is how the kingdom of God works. Uh, and this story is compelling because we all know that deep down we long for it to be true. We long for a savior. And every generation, every culture is longing for that. So go and tell, and don't stop at telling, persuade. And with our life, witness, witness with our words, with our actions, with our life. Another thing to say is let's listen well. Let's learn to understand our culture, listen well. John Stott calls this double listening. It's going to be on the screen, uh, this quote that I have uh, from John Stott. It says, we are called to double listening, listening both to the word and the world. We are called to understand the world. We listen to the word with humble reverence, anxious to understand it, resolved to believe and obey what we have come to understand. We also listen to the world with critical alertness, anxious to understand it too, Resolve not necessarily to believe and obey, but to sympathize. To sympathize with the world and to seek grace to discover how the gospel relates to our broken world. And you require active listening. John Saul called this double listening. What's the basis of that? Why do we need to care about the world and understand the world, understand culture, so that we know how to present the Christian message to them in the most compelling way? Am I saying this because I have no faith that God can just you know, save and it's about me. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that or I'm not saying let's improvise the message. There's a theological basis for me talking about double listening and understanding the word. And the basis is this. We believe and serve a God who drew near to us, right? This transcendent God who entered our world. This spiritual God who took on human flesh. Jesus himself, he drew near to us. He spoke to us in language that we can understand, not heavenly language that none of us can understand. And the Bible is presented to us in our language. God came and drew near to us. Therefore, we are called to be sent into the world to tell, to persuade in the way that the world understands us as part of our persuasion and gospel witness. Um, I'm going to end soon, really soon. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to recommend another book, uh, Biblical Critical Theory. Uh, <laughs> Joe is sitting there. That's the guy who passed me the book as a gift. Um, I, you'll be pleased to know that I've been reading this book uh, after three or four hours, I'm still only in chapter three. <laughs> because the introduction was so rich, uh, it took me a few readings uh, to really internalize that. And then, uh, and I was initially thought that this is mainly intellectual things about critical theory, um, only to feel really, really compelled and moved by many of the things covered in this book. And the main takeaway is that I need to grow in understanding culture, understand the world. The world keeps changing and there is so much precious treasure in the gospel of Jesus Christ that if I know how to draw it out, it can be applied to the world and to situation and to people very powerfully. I love um, how Chris Watkins uh, asked 
in, in the introduction. How can we as Christians be the question that God puts to the world today? Let's strive to be a church that go, that tell, that persuade. Finally, what will Agrippa do? Want to make a guess? How did he respond? The answer is, I don't know. <laughs> because the text doesn't tell me that at all. Uh, Agrippa, there's, there's nothing much. He was presented with a question. He gave an answer that doesn't quite tell us where he lands. He made a conclusion that this Paul is innocent, but as to whether or not he believed in the resurrection of Jesus, we do not know. We do not know at all. Uh, the previous chapter, Felix, he loved money. In this chapter, we see that Festus, he seems to love power and approval. So maybe they did not truly believe in this good news. But for Agrippa, we, we cannot tell at all. Agrippa was smart. He was smart to know that Paul was trying to evangelize to him. He knew his Bible. He uh, was familiar with the prophet and Moses. So here is a guy who uh, is similar to someone who is brought up in a Christian mission school since young, attended chapel service. Parents maybe brought them to church. They, they sat in Sunday schools and sermon regularly, familiar with Christian jargons, understand the Christian worldview, read Christian books, have many Christian friends. Maybe they can even explain the Christian faith to you accurately and compellingly. And they wouldn't consider themselves a Christian. Or they are nominal Christians at best. Why? Now, church, sometimes we assume that if we give people enough information, let's do an evangelistic Bible study with someone, give them more information, make them sit down under more sermons, send them more resources and books, hopefully with the increase in information and knowledge, they will eventually come to faith. It's not so straightforward. Because seated here could be some of us who are not Christians, exploring the Christian faith for months and years, and the reason why we are choosing not to become Christian is exactly because we understand the Christian faith. You hear me? The reason why we do not want to be a Christian is because we know what this entails. We know the implication for our life and we love our life too much to give it up for Christ Jesus. And that is one of the reasons why many of us, even with all the information that we need, we, we have, we refuse to put our faith in Jesus. And it's more comfortable to be in the position where I'm seeking, I'm knowing more and more, I'm discovering, than to say that I've arrived, I'm a Christian. Now, I just really want to encourage you today. I really want to encourage you today. If today the Spirit of God is nudging, is softening your heart, is knocking at your heart, you know, and, and compelling you towards faith and belief and trust in the name of Jesus, Will you not harden your heart? Will you please not harden your heart and turn to Jesus? Turn to Him in faith. Pray to Him. We do not know why it's Agrippa's response, but my concern is more your response. Will you respond to God today? Will you allow me to close us in prayer before Ikyong lead us in communion? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you as those who are weak and just want to give thanks to you for the grace and strength that you have given to us. We love you, and we thank you for this word today. Thank you for how your scriptures reveal so much riches, and we do not deserve this, but we just give thanks to you for your grace. And for my friends here who have not come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, for those who wouldn't consider themselves as Christian, I pray today that you turn them to you, turn them to respond to you, by faith. Help them to see you. 
May you open their eyes so that they see your light and respond to you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg. 